Welcome to the final week of James. Did you ever think we were going to get to the end of this book? It's only five chapters, but it took us a little while to get there. Today, I want to start in James chapter 5, and I'm going to start in verse 13, and we'll go back and hit some of the other verses. But I'm actually, I'm, I'm very excited to speak today on this uh, final final installment because James hits on something that I think is is very interesting. Um, you know, a lot of times on a Sunday, when I look around the room uh, in church, I mean, there can be hundreds of people in the room. And we have hundreds of people in the room. It's like you got people that are experiencing different emotions, different trials. And it can just be, it can be like, man, how can we bring all these people together in one room? You got one person who's lost their job that week and you got another person who got a raise or got a job that week. You have someone who just lost a dear family member and you have another young couple who just welcomed a new child into the world. And so whenever the church gathers, there's just a wide range of emotions. There's a wide range of different things that people are walking through. And how do you respond? What is the, and when you're in a crowd of people that have that varying different types of things going on, what is the proper response? And that's what I want to talk today about is how do we respond as a community? And James gives us a few examples of things people may be going through. And then he gives us the response to those things as a community. So let's start in verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So I want to talk today about response because I think response is important because there's three different things that James gives examples of and then he gives you a proper response. He's like, hey, are you suffering? Here's the response. You pray. Hey, are you, are you happy? Here's the response. Let's sing praise. Hey, are you sick? Here's the response. Let's gather the church together and let the church lay hands on you and pray for you. So I, I, wanna, I just want to do those three things. Maybe you're watching today and maybe you're in a time of suffering. I want to tell you what you should do. You should cry out to God. Maybe you're watching today and you're just in a great time of life. God's, you feel the blessing of the Lord on your life. What's the response? The response is to give God praise. Maybe you're sick today. What do you need? You need someone to come and to lay hands on you and to pray the prayer of faith over your life. I love the community of God and I love the word of God. So let's just start with the first question James asked. Is anyone suffering let him pray. Now in the, in the Bible, there are a lot of different types of prayer. And the word used here by James is uh, prosukamai, which is actually the most common used word for prayer in the New Testament. 
Uh, it's used over 127 times when he says, let them pray. And so I want to I zoom in today or zero in on a particular type of prayer that I'm not sure I've ever talked about. And I really don't hear it talked about a whole lot in church. And that is the prayer of lament. If you're suffering, lament is what I'm going to tell you today. Okay, so look, a few weeks back, I talked about James chapter 3. I talked about the power of the tongue. And one of the things that we have to be careful with our tongue is grumbling and complaining. And, and while that's absolutely true, I remember after that sermon a few weeks ago, I was thinking about it, and I thought, man, people really responded well to that message about the power of the tongue and being careful about complaining. But I, I had this other thought, though, is like, now what do you, how do you, is there a proper way to complain? Is there a proper way to grumble? Is there a proper way to vent or to let off steam? And actually, there is. And, and, and I want us to, to see today that God has given us something that we can use as a tool when life gets hard. Because let's be honest, life sometimes is beautiful, but life also sometimes can be very terrible. Life can be really hard. And so what do you do when life is hard. I think it's unbiblically, unbiblical and unhealthy to deny pain. We don't deny pain. We don't just ignore our problems and put on a happy face when we come to church. We cannot believe the lie that says we're not allowed to feel anger or bitterness or grief. But when we, when we, when we do feel that way, we also can't believe the lie that it's up to us to deal with it in our strength. But the Bible and the Lord offers us a legitimate way to complain. He offers us a legitimate way to bring protest when life is hard, and it is called lament. Okay, we don't talk about lament a lot, but it's in the Bible. I mean, when you think about the book of Psalms, do you realize there's 150 Psalms, and a lot of them are Psalms of praise, but actually almost half, maybe even more of the Psalms are actually laments. You know, it's the psalmists, they bring protest to God about what's going on in their life. They get in God's face about it. There's even like, hey, there's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. There's a whole book about lamenting. So there's a proper way to deal with despair, anxiety, fear, conflicts that we face in life. And that proper way is lament. And I want to give you a tool in this first and this first point today that I'm indebted to Dr. Leroy Martin and his work on the Psalms, he breaks down the, the, the laments in the Psalms and he gives us a process that they usually follow. And I think you can follow this same process when, you're, when you want to complain, when you want to grumble, when life is terribly hard, there is power in lamenting to God. And so Dr. Martin gives seven uh, seven elements of a lament that he sees in the Psalms when someone is complaining to God or bringing a protest to God. And here are, this is the seven. Number one is an address to God. Number two is some sort of petition. Number three is the complaint. What's going wrong? Number four is the assurance of an answer. Number five is a statement of trust. Number six, there's usually a vow of praise. And then the last one is number seven, a descriptive praise. I want us to look at Psalm 130 because Psalm 130 is a lament. And I want us to see these seven things in the psalm. And, and I want you to see how you can use this in your own life to bring lament, to pray. If you're suffering, if you're going through a hard time, 
there, you're not the first one to ever go through a hard time. There's so many of God's saints that have walked through hard times. And we have in the Psalms a way to let that grief out in the presence of God. Look, let's read Psalm 130. It says, Psalm 130, it says, This is a song of ascent. Let's stop for a second. A psalm of ascent. What does that mean? Okay, three times a year, the Israelites were called to come to the temple in Jerusalem. And if you even go to Jerusalem today, it's called the, where the temple was, it's called the Temple Mount. It's a hill that the temple sits on. And so it doesn't matter where you're traveling from when you're coming to the temple, whatever part of Israel you're coming from, you are going uphill. You are ascending. And so the Israelites had these Psalms, a section in the Psalms, they're called the Psalms of Ascent. And as they were pilgriming, as they were journeying up to Jerusalem, they would sing these songs on their journey. Now, some of the songs were praise as they anticipate being at the temple. But some of the psalms, like the one we're about to read, are laments like this one. And you know what? We are pilgrims in the earth, just like the Jerusalem, the Israelites were pilgrims heading to Jerusalem. And the place we live now is not our home. We're just passing through. And this journey can sometimes be like an uphill battle. But the Lord has given us words to speak on our journey as we travel upwards, we, we have lament that we can bring to him. Okay, number one, remember the address to God. Psalm 130, the, the, the writer begins this way. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Sometimes in the Psalms, we're talking about God and who God is. But a lament is always addressed to God. I think this is so important. When you bring a complaint, you gotta, you, when you're bringing a complaint, you got to bring a complaint to the one who can fix the problem. You know who can't fix the problem? Other people sometimes. You know who can't fix the problem? Social media. You know who can't fix the problem? Or what can't fix the problem? Texting someone about the problem. When you go to a restaurant and you have a complaint, what do you say? You say, can I speak to your manager, please? Why? Because you want to speak to someone who can do something about the problem. And when you lament, you take it to God. You get in God's face and you say, I've got this complaint, God. I got this thing that's going on in my life. And you're going to take it straight to the top and you're going to let it be from your guts. He says, out of the depths, I cry to you. That's the first thing. Number two, there's a petition. Listen, he says, oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So prayers of lament, they often reflect uh, the sentiment of God. Where, like, like, God, where have you been? Look at what he says, oh Lord, hear my voice. It, it, they often reflect the sentiment like, God, do you hear me? Do you see me? Do you know what I'm going through here, through here God? Where are you? How long will you be silent? When will you move? And the psalmist is saying, oh God, hear my request. And then he lays out the request. Now, the psalmist here is asking for mercy. So this is a, a lament, but it's also a prayer of repentance. Whatever the suffering is that this, this psalmist is suffering through, it's, it's because the troubles he's brought on his own self through his own sin. And he's crying out and he's saying, I need mercy and forgiveness. But let me say there are laments in the psalms where the pain being experienced is not brought on by any sin of their own. It's just life that they're walking through. And they need, and they need God to, to, to have mercy. And so there's, there in lament, you come before God and you are specific about what's going on. It's a petition. 
Rick Renner says a petition is a specific, exact, explicit, precise, detailed request. I like to say it like this. If prayer is going to be effective, it must be selective. In other words, when you come to God and get in his face, don't pray in generalities. Pinpoint something. Pray for it. Believe for it. Tell God exactly where it hurts. Tell him from your guts. Be specific. Number three, the complaint. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Here's the complaint. Here's the problem. The problem in this psalm is that there's a failure on the part of humanity and the failure of the psalmist to live up to God's righteous standard. And if being accepted by God were based on their performance, he's saying we're all doomed. God, if you mark iniquities, whew, we're in trouble. If you keep up with every single sin, my goodness, how many times have I fallen short? He's complaining about the problem of humanity. But then he moves, number four, to an assurance of an answer. Number Verse four, it says, but, but with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I love this because he's been in a time of turmoil and he's crying out to God. But even in the midst of the turmoil, there is the assurance that God is going to answer. In the midst of despair, there is a source of hope. Why is there a source of hope? Because the same God who has answered in the past will answer again. Why is there hope? Because when you lament to God, you're not just complaining out into thin air, but you're actually bringing your lament, right, into the very presence of God. And so in the darkest, most grievous laments, there's hope because we do not lament to avoid. We have brought it to God, just like others who've walked this earth before us. The God who forgave Israel in the past can forgive this psalmist as well. He's in the presence of God. And the fifth and sixth things are a statement of trust and a vow of praise. We see this in verses five and six. It says, I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord for the Lord is steadfast. There is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. So lament expresses and verbalizes our pain and suffering. It cries out for help, but lamenting is also an act of hope. This, this writer says, I am going to wait for you. What does it mean to wait and hope? Waiting in the biblical sense is not passive waiting like you do in a doctor's office. But I like what John Hartley says. He says, we look with eager expectation it means enduring patiently and confident hope that God will decisively act for the salvation of his people. You see, we're called to have a solid expectation that God is going to move and he's going to act. When I think of waiting, I think about a, a mother who's waiting for her child to be born. A mother doesn't just sit around and wait for a child to be born. What does a mother do? A mother begins to nest. She's not passive. She's going to get that crib put together. She's going to get that room painted. She's going to get those stuffed animals in there. The baby's not here yet, but the baby will be here soon. And so she waits in eager expectation. And as she's waiting, she's preparing for that coming of the, of, of the child. And this is what James, he's going to, I'm going to flip back to James for a second. James says, when you're suffering, when you pray, when you lament, you lament with hope. Look what he, because Jesus is going to come 
Again, let's look at 5-7. James says, be patient there, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord. And the Lord is compassionate and merciful, just like the psalmist was saying. And so what do we do? We wait with expectation. In the new covenant, what are we called to do? We're called to wait with expectation for the coming of the Lord. And we wait. How do we, why do we have expectation? How do we know Jesus is going to come again? Because he came the first time. He has a track record of being good on his word. Our hope and our expectation is that there is a day coming when every wrong will be made right. Every tear will be wiped away. The suffering you're facing now, Jesus is going to redeem that suffering. There will be a day when faith will be made sight. And we're called to look with eager expectation to that day. Our hope is coming and he will not fail. And usually in a psalm of lament, there's like a, a typically a vow of praise. It's more implicit than explicit in Psalm 130. But, you know, sometimes praise breaks out into a lament. A prayer is, a, someone is lamenting and they're praying and sometimes they slip into praise because they, are, they know that God is good for his word. Faith gets in their heart and they look back and they see that God brought them through the last trial and what he did before, he's gonna do it again. And praise sometimes, it's like a down payment. You're in the midst of your trial, but you tell God, I might not feel like it, but I'm going to praise you anyways. Or God, when you get me through this trial, I'm going to tell everyone about your faithfulness. I vowed to praise you, God. And then the last thing is descriptive praise. Verse 8, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Oftentimes, the laments will end with praise. It moves from prayer and petition to praise. It ends with expectation. It starts out sorrowful but moves into hope. The psalmist ends with the realization that God is committed to his people and that he has an abundant supply of redemption to bring them back to himself. God's goodness and mercy are stronger than man's failures in this lament. Hey, listen to me just for a moment here. When Jesus is on the cross and Jesus is suffering and he's going through a hard time, what does he say? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where did Jesus get those words from? He didn't come up with that out of thin air. Those words are from Psalm 22. You know what Psalm 22 is? Psalm 22 is a lament. Jesus is suffering and Jesus laments to God. He uses the word of the psalmist as his own words. And he comes to God and says, why? Why, God, have you forsaken me? Can I encourage you to do the same thing Jesus did? When you're walking through trials, take these psalms. Bring them into the presence of God. Use the words of the psalmists. Because that lament will oftentimes bring you into the very presence of God. At the other end of the lament is God's presence.
Dr. Ricky Moore says this, lament over oppressive life conditions actually becomes the path that when followed with tenacious faithfulness to the end, indeed, the end of ourselves, it leads us to the revelation of God as the true end, the highest joy, and the lasting praise of our life. Lament will lead you down a path where you come to the end of yourself, and at the end of yourself, there's God's presence, the highest joy of life. God is often at the end of lament. And let me tell you, lament is important. We need to make space in church for lament. I heard the story recently. A guy was telling me of a young couple that he knew that lost a baby. A woman went through many hours of labor, but the baby didn't make it. The baby passed away. And they were a part of a church that was, it was a, a young church, mostly made up of young people. And the church had, was 10 years old at this time. And it was made up of young people. And the funeral of this baby was the first funeral the church had ever had. It was just a church of all young people. And so basically what the couple was saying is the church had no idea how to weep with those who weep because they had never done it before. So this, this, they had lost this child, and, 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 and they said every time they went to church, everything was just so happy, and everything was, and it was like they had no space at church to lament. The couple ended up having to leave and go somewhere else because there was no space for the grief in their heart at church. Lament is important. James says if you're suffering, you need to lament. I want to be a church that allows people the space to grieve and to hurt. I want to, be, I want to have a church that allows people to cry out to God from their depths. That's why we have altars. That's why at the end of every service, we ask people to come and to pray. The altar is a place of great joy. It's a place of hope, but it's also a place where you can weep in the presence of God, where you can weep and cry out to God, why have you forsaken me? And find the relief in the presence of God that you need, the power of lament. But we don't just lament. We also are a people of praise. He says, what about if you're happy? What should you do? He says, let him sing praise. If you read Psalms, you're going to find is that in the Psalter, it runs on two tracks. There is prayer and praise, or there's lament and praise. There are they're not two things that are opposite of each other, but they're actually two tracks that run parallel to each other. And the train of your life is to run on these two tracks, prayer, lament, and praise. And these two tracks are going to lead you into the presence of God. So you need times where you weep from the center of your being, but you also need times where you're overcome with joy at who God is and what he's done. You need times where it, you, you are led to an exuberant, excited, ecstatic, full of glory type of praise. I'm talking about high fives, chest bumps, like let's go. I'm talking about jumping, dancing, shouting, like genuine excitement about the Lord and all that he's done. And you might think, oh, well, I don't want to get emotional. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think you should get emotional in church. Well, why not? You get emotional everywhere else. 
Come on. We get emotional about politics. That gets us real emotional. You, get a, you, you got a raise. I bet, I bet when you got that raise, you got emotional. I bet when you got that job, you got emotional. <coughs> when your kid hits the game-winning hit, I bet you get emotional. Or if he scores the game-winning goal, I bet you get emotional. If your favorite song comes on the radio and you're all by yourself in your car, I bet you turn it up to 10 and I bet you sing at the top of your lungs and you enjoy it. All those things are great. I think you should get emotional about them. But when you praise God, what you're saying is, yes, all those things are great. They're all blessings and wonderful. But there is actually one who is above the greatest of human achievements. There is one who is greater than all the greatest blessings. And I should get emotional and happy and joyful about him too. There's an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wonderful God who knows me, loves me, and gave his life for me. I want to read Psalm 150 because Psalm 150 is like, it's the, it is, we just read a lament. Now I want to read a praise, man. Let's have a praise break up in here today, okay? Psalm 150 says this. It says, praise the Lord with an exclamation. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with the tambourine and the dance. Praise him with the strings and the pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. I love this psalm. I love it because as you read it, you can actually feel this thing building and anticipation. Like each line of this song, it just seems like it's growing. With each addition of each instrument, it's like it's adding a new level of excitement and it's bubbling up and bubbling up. And then at the end, it just explodes. And the psalmist says, you know what? Just let everything that's got breath, let us praise the Lord. It just explodes at the end. And, uh, you know, back in the day when I was growing up here at this church, back when we were Eastridge Church of God, we used to sing a song called Psalm 150. And I loved the song because the song, Psalm 150, that we would sing did exactly what this song did. The song would start out and it was good. But by the time we got to that end of that song, man, I'm telling you, it was like an explosion would happen in the room. The song starts out, uh, you know, forgive me as I reminisce a little bit. There's like a little piano intro at top. It's like, all right, so the piano gets going and then like the drums kick in and it just makes you want to do this right here. Okay, you go back and forth. Yeah, all right, so here we are. We're grooving and then here comes the choir right here. They say, praise ye the Lord, praise ye the Lord, let everything. Come on, y'all remember that song? Have we got any old East Ridge Church of God people out there? We used to sing that song, Psalm 150. And I'm telling you, with each go around of that song, something would build. And then we would do this breakdown part. Okay, this is my favorite part. We would actually break down and add all the instruments. So the first one, uh, we would, the choir would sing, praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. And I, I actually, little Chad, I played the trumpet back in the day. I was in the band. Uh, and, and so the, the horn lick, I still remember it. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Ba -da 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 -da. 
And then they would say it again, praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. And it would, okay, and we just kept adding instruments. They would say, praise him with the harp and the lyre. Okay, now we didn't have no harp player, okay? But we did have Miss Donna Summerlin back on the keyboard, and she would like, ooh, she'd play like a, a lick, like with a harp sound or a string sound. Uh, and then, uh, okay, praise him with the tambourine and dancing. And someone would, uh, they would, they would hit that. I wish I had a tambourine right now. But uh, they would hit that tambourine. Uh, and then the last, okay, not the last one. It would say, praise him, praise him, praise him with the string instruments. And uh, we'd let a guitar solo fly right there, you know, uh, just. And then the, the very last one, though, was the cymbals. Now, I'm telling you, when we got to the cymbals, it was, it was, praise him with the crashing of the cymbals. And the cymbal player would just be like, you know, he would be hitting the tops of those cymbals. And then the last line was praise him with the resounding cymbals, okay? Uh, I don't know what a resounding cymbal is, but we got, okay, by the time we would get to the resounding cymbal, okay, we're no longer clapping like this anymore, going back and forth. By the time we get to the resounding cymbal and we come back out and sing praise ye the Lord again, I'm telling you, the place has gone from starting out with a little bit of praise, it's been bubbling up, and now we move into where it just erupts, where everybody in the whole church church is praising the Lord. You know, someone in the audience might would get happy and they might would take off running. Somebody might shout. Somebody might start a Jericho march around the building. And you know what? It would just erupt in praise. And can I tell you something? I am here for it. I want that atmosphere, man. I need that atmosphere. We are a Pentecostal church. That's who we are. We're a church that's exuberant in praise. And I hope our church never, ever, ever, ever loses that. Because something powerful happens when we erupt in praise and everybody in the room, everything that has breath in the room is praising the Lord together. It's no longer about the people on the stage that are up there and we're all looking at them. No, it's turned into a giant choir. It's turned into a giant uh, team of worshipers in the room and God's spirit just breaks out. We can't lose that. We can't lose that praise. I'm telling you something powerful happens. I, I read, I came across this excerpt from one of our pioneers in the faith. One of our Pentecostal fathers, his name was John Little. He wrote in 1917, so this is over a hundred years ago. He wrote in 1917 in a, in a periodical known as the Bridegroom Messenger called The Life of Praise. And listen to what he says. He says, praise is a lost art of the church. The note that is missing in our worship of God today. He says, there are no hallelujahs. There are no amens. There are no praise the Lord's to be heard in the apostate churches of Christendom. All the joy seems to have died out in their worship of dear father. They are choked to death with respectability. And if we are not careful, this is what will happen in our Pentecostal assemblies. We are in danger of forgetting that praise played a very important part in the life of the Old Testament saints. He says, turn to Psalm 107. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for the goodness and for the wonderful works of the children of men. 
Listen to David as he says, I will praise the name of God with a song and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. He said, these Old Testament saints, it's a good, said it's a good thing to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises unto your name, O Most High. So they considered thanksgiving and praise a duty and failure in this is disobedience. But praise was the very essence of the Old Testament worship. And with New Testament saints, it was the same. It is recorded that they were continuously in the temple praising and blessing God. Listen to me today, church. We need to lament. We need to cry out to God from the depths of our being. But there needs to be a praise that comes out of God's people. I'm telling you, when we gather at God's house on Sunday, there needs to be a praise. There needs to be a clapping of the hands, a lifting of the voice, a shouting, a dancing. There needs to be a praise that comes out of you. Your spirit needs to praise. There is something freeing about it. When you quit caring what people think, when, you, when you're not worried about looking like an anti-intellectual, when you're not worried about you know, who's watching and you just let the praise of God come from your whole being. You get your eyes off yourself and you put your eyes on the one who is holy, holy, holy. And your whole being praises God. You were made for it. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I want to be a church of exuberant praise when we come together. Let's praise the Lord together. The last one. James said, as if you're sick. He said, is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now I want you to notice the communal aspect of what James is saying here. You can lament in your private prayer place. You can praise in your private prayer place. But when you're sick, James says, let the community come around you. Let someone lay their hands on you. I'm thankful for the tool that we're using today. If you're watching this, that means you're at home and you couldn't make it to church. I'm thankful that we can do this and you can watch this from at home on your couch or wherever you're at today. You can listen to it. I'm so thankful for the technology to to be able to do this so you can stay somewhat connected when you're not here. But listen to me. Nothing can replace someone laying their hands on you, the church gathering around you and laying their hands on you and praying for you in your time of need. When was the last time someone laid hands on you and prayed for you? You need it. You need it. There is a communal aspect to our faith that you cannot live out by yourself. In just a few verses down, James says, confess your sins one to another. Pray that you might be healed. What if your healing was dependent upon you confessing to another brother or sister in Christ? You are as sick as your secrets. You might get forgiveness from God, but healing comes from confessing to another brother or sister in Christ. That's why I love C groups that are launching in the next coming weeks. C groups are designed to help you find those people, to help you find that person that you can take the mask off for a little bit with and just be totally honest about what's going on in your life. You're only as healed as your secrets that you keep. If you keep a bunch of secrets, guess what? No healing in your soul. You gotta confess. You gotta find someone you could talk to, another brother or sister in Christ. 
Let them pray for you. Let them lay hands on you. This is a communal thing that we do. This is a community of faith. And the prayer, James says, the prayer of faith of the community will raise that person up. He says, anoint them with the oil. Now listen, don't be weirded out by anointing oil. You don't have to be weirded out. Our, our faith is full of symbols. Okay, we use symbols in all of our faith. We use water for baptism. That's a symbol. We use bread and wine or bread and grape juice for communion. That, these are symbols that point to a greater reality. And, but the thing is, we believe they're not just symbolic, but we actually believe they're effectual. We believe you can experience the presence of the, God, of, of the Lord through these mediums. Man, I've, I've seen people come up out of the waters of baptism and have an experience with God that was unbelievable. Like they experienced God's presence through the waters of baptism. And James is saying the oil that we, 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 when we pray for people to be healed, it just represents the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, and that people can actually experience the power of the Holy Spirit through this medium. He, he expects it. Hey, just anoint him with oil and pray for them. And so we're a community that believes in divine healing. We believe in it. Okay, listen, Jesus, Matthew 4.23, what does it say that Jesus did? Jesus' ministry was about three things, okay? It says he was teaching in the synagogue. So Jesus is a teacher. It says he was pre proclaiming or preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus is a teacher. Jesus is a preacher. And here's the last one. And he was healing every disease and affliction among the people. So it is safe to say that one third of the ministry of Jesus was healing people. This isn't a peripheral subject. Healing is central to the ministry and the message of Jesus. We're not going to rationalize and reason away the ministry of Jesus of healing. And we can't ignore it. We should be praying for people to be healed. We should be gathering the church and laying hands on people and asking Jesus to heal them. I believe that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a healer, and he'll always be a healer. So we're going to preach Jesus as a healer. We're going to pray the prayer of faith and ask the Lord to heal people. I ran into a friend a couple of weeks ago He's a friend of our church. His name's Sam Abbott. He's been a friend of our church for many years. A friend of my dad's. And back when COVID was really bad, back with the, uh, I think it was the Delta variant, he had contracted COVID and it was a very, very dire situation for Sam. Sam was at death's door in the hospital. And many were praying. We were praying. The community of faith was praying. And Sam told me that one night or one morning at about three in the morning, he had an experience with God that was probably the most powerful experience of his life. He'll never forget it. He said, this way told me, okay, I believe him. He said, it was almost like a mist filled my hospital room. It was the glory of God was in my hospital room. And he said, God touched me in that moment. And from that moment on, I began to get better and I was healed. And he said, when I felt God touch me, this is what he said. He felt like the Holy Spirit told him. He, the Holy Spirit said, someone has touched the throne of God for you. <laughs> someone has prayed you through, Sam. Whew, this is why we need the community. 
when you're sick and you're down and you can't pray for yourself. You need the community to come. You need someone to touch heaven for you. Who's doing that for you when you can't do it for yourself? Reminds me of the story in the gospel where the four men tear a hole through the roof and they lower their friend down that can't get to Jesus and they lower him right in front of Jesus and the Bible says, seeing their faith, not the faith of the man laying on the mat who couldn't move, but the faith of the friends who lowered them, lowered the person down to Jesus. It was their faith that brought about that healing. Oh, you need the community to pray for you. I believe in it. And you say, well, Chad, what about people that, what about the people that aren't healed? What about when we pray for people and they aren't healed? Look, my job isn't, I, I, I can't heal anybody. Jesus is the healer. My job is just to pray for people. So if I, if I go down, I'm going to go down swinging. I'm going to pray and believe for God to heal people. But here's what you need to know. When you are healed, healing is a sign of the age to come. Healing is not the ultimate. Healing is penultimate. The ultimate is Jesus and the resurrection. Healing is a sign that death has been defeated. Healing is a sign that the age to come is actually overlapping with the present age we're in. And one day it's going to swallow up this age. Healing simply is a sign that we're going to a place where we will forever be healed. And when, and when James says the prayer of faith will raise up the one you've been praying for, he uses the word egero, which in Greek the word agero is always used in the Gospels to talk about resurrection. James is using resurrection label he, or, or, or language. He's given us a promise that there is a chance and an opportunity for healing on this earth. But there is a 100% chance of healing in the age to come, in the age of resurrection. And that is the age we're looking to. That is the promise we're holding on to. That one day we will be resurrected. Okay, listen. Everybody that's been healed... In the past, think about Lazarus. Lazarus was healed, man. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but Lazarus died again. Paul, the great man of faith, he died. James, the man who wrote this book, he died. There is appointed for each man. We're all going to die. I don't care if you've been healed a hundred times. At some point, you are going to die. That's why healing is not our ultimate hope in this life our ultimate healing when Jesus gives us resurrected bodies and when he restores all things and he restores the earth. That is the day we're looking forward to with eager expectation. And so today, as we close out the book of James, my plea to you today is find, a, find yourself a community of faith. Find yourself a place where you can lament when you're walking through the very depths of hell. But find you a community where you can release a praise out of your belly that comes and sets people free and sets your own soul free. Find you a place when you're down and you have no faith of your own that someone can lay hands on you and raise you up with their prayer of faith. The community such a strong thing that we have from God. I'm so thankful for the church, thankful for the body of Christ, thankful for you today. Father, I pray for your people. I pray, God, that they would be people who learn to lament and weep. They would be people who learn to praise. Lord, that we would be people who learn to share our burdens.
confess our faults. Let others lay hands on us and pray. I ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Let us be these people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being with us today. I want to remind you next week is going to be an awesome week. My good friend Jude Fuquay is going to be here. He's going to be speaking at 9 and 11. It's in the room only. We'll record it and play it later. But live that day, you'll want to be here for that. And then Sunday night, we're going to have a spirit night. Pastor Jude is very gifted prophetically. He'll be praying and and, and prophesying over people. And you don't want to miss that. So that's August the 28th. Jude Fuquay will be here with us all day. I'm super excited about it. And uh, we will see you soon. Be blessed.